What's up everybody? Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Today in my sixth stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of Goldman Sachs, which is my 20th largest stock by market value in my dividend portfolio. After this video, I've got another 19 more reveals to go until my entire portfolio is shown. Going forward, I'll start sharing dividends received for Disney, Pfizer, Home Depot, Chevron, Travelers, and Goldman Sachs until I start doing monthly portfolio updates listing all the dividends I've received and any buys or sells that I've done. Please check out the timestamps if you just want to jump to the portfolio section, where I also share the Home Depot dividend I've received since last week. That being said, it really helps me if you watch or listen to this whole video as it took a tremendous amount of effort to put together. Did you know that Warren Buffett is the fourth largest shareholder of Goldman Sachs in the world per Kiplinger's? and now owns about 5% of it, which is about $4 billion worth, and it represents about 2% of Berkshire Hathaway? Did you know that Goldman Sachs just did one of the biggest dividend increases from a percentage standpoint that you might have ever heard of? Keep watching to learn about this as well as how I analyze Goldman Sachs, its financial metrics, concerns and risks you should be aware of, what I would buy it at, and a slew of other useful information to hone your investing skills. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to watch my videos. I really appreciate the thumbs up, the comments, when you share my videos, and if you subscribe. It tells me I'm on the right track with providing you some value. Now some subs have said that they really liked my Get to Know Me shoutout video because they got to learn more insights about my background, and so they asked me if I would share more of my investing philosophies. So I'll do that now, and we'll also explain why I have Goldman Sachs in my portfolio. My investing roots started in growth stocks. I invested in growth and fortunately made money, but I never got what I'm going to call true joy from doing it. Sure, I had fun being with my friends and talking about growth stocks, and I always liked the outcomes I achieved from buying low and selling high, but to me, it was just a task I did to get my finances on a better path. Yes, I got a brief high from executing a great trade, but that high was short-lived. But I get true joy from dividend investing and buying with little intention of selling. Now I actually feel like I'm an owner of a business, whereas before I just felt like I was involved in a transient activity to make cash. I completely understand why Rockefeller once said, do you know the only thing that gives me pleasure? It's to see my dividends coming in. Now I don't literally feel the same way, but fundamentally I understand it because I get great pleasure watching my dividends pour in, unlike any other investments I've ever dealt with. I found that each investment asset has its own pros and cons. They each have their own levels of risk and reward, and ultimately I feel you should invest based on your competency, goals, and risk tolerance. So I still invest in growth stocks when I see a deal and when I sell when I feel the time is right. There are amazing companies that don't have dividends, like Google, Amazon, Tesla, and Berkshire Hathaway, and there's money to be made in small caps too. But I have found that my passion and joy comes from when I'm investing in quality dividend-bearing companies. I love the fact that I'm not going to be selling 4% of my principal every year in retirement and that I'm creating an ever-increasing snowball of passive income that my family as well as our future generations will prosper from. So while now I'm primarily a dividend investor, I also invest in growth. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Independent Investor made a great analogy to Bruce Lee in a video he did recently, and so I'll give you my take on it. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind, be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. To me, Bruce is saying that water adapts easily to whatever happens to it. To succeed, we need to be able to adapt and not be rigid. You adapt, you deal, you don't complain or blame. Don't let your past control you. You can be successful no matter what, as long as you believe and adapt. Your investment style doesn't need to be static. No need to be dogmatic. Be pragmatic. Be flexible. Learn. Evolve. Be like water, my friend. I will tell you that dividend investing is a longer game that many don't have the patience for. It is one of the ultimate examples of starting small and growing slowly at first. If you aren't willing to invest over the long term, 
then you won't see the real fruits of your labor. It's like working out. Very few people make it to the point where they get a six pack or can bench 405 or whatever your grandiose goals might be. But those that do persist and are willing to put a lot of focus and consistent commitment to their goals are often handsomely rewarded. People want to get rich quick. That's not dividend investing. That's not how it works in the gym. And that's not how it works really in life or anything where you get great results. Here are a couple of great quotes from Thomas Edison. I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. And many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Think about this. Only about one half the people in America own stocks directly in their personal brokerage accounts or indirectly in pension plans, 401ks, and or IRAs. If your combined direct and indirect stock holdings are greater than $10,000, then you are already ahead of more than 73% of the middle class. Don't worry if you aren't at that 10K mark yet. I'm confident you will be if you consistently invest a decent amount in quality companies over the long term. The reality I found is that very few people have the patience to succeed at dividend investing because they give up, pull the cash out, and don't invest in quality. But if you are watching this video, that tells me that you are one of the very few who should succeed just based on your interests and passion. By the way, I sub-realized that I follow a specific process when I'm analyzing companies which I sometimes adjust based on the industry I'm analyzing. Part of the reason I use a process is because I want to try to minimize my own biases when I'm looking at a company. I'm not the smartest investor, so I try to be as analytical and logical and disciplined that I can be. I always have a concerns and risks section in my deep analysis videos because I also like to try to talk myself out of something I'm leaning towards, as well as I want you to be aware of some downsides or potential downsides that I found. I feel like if someone is only sharing the great things about a stock, then you're missing the reality of the situation. And that's assuming they've done a rigorous and accurate analysis. Now you don't need to do any analysis and you can get lucky and you can do a lot of analysis and things can still turn out poorly. When I'm analyzing a company and I see things I don't like, I will often just stop analyzing it and move on to something else. I realize that the more time I spend reviewing a business, the more likely I am biased to invest in it. So I try to balance understanding it enough to become convicted with analyzing it as quickly as possible to minimize my own bias. I'm okay missing a great company. I remember listening to Amazon ads on Howard Stern's Sirius show and thinking, why would someone be doing another e-commerce company? That was obviously a mistake on my part, but that's okay. There are many wonderful companies out there. What are there? Maybe a half million companies in the world and a few thousand in the U.S. that are all public? It's okay to miss something. Just buy great companies at a cheap price and things should turn out okay. Now let's talk about Goldman Sachs, a position I originally took as a growth play, not a dividend play. They are considered the premier investment banking firm in the world, and they provide a wide range of financial services to corporations, financial institutions, governments, and individuals. They have offices in over 30 countries and 46% of their employees are based outside the Americas. Their clients are located worldwide which makes them the type of company that I love to see, an American company that has revenue coming from all around the world. Here's a ranking of investment banks by Equity Research. Here's another one by Street of Walls. And yet another from Business Because. In these investment banking rankings, you can see that Goldman is on top, usually followed by Morgan Stanley. So I'll use Morgan Stanley as the best competitor to gauge Goldman against. Now to be thorough, I recommend you use multiple competitors rather than just one. But once you see the process I do for just one, then you can determine if you want to do what I often do and use multiple competitors. I'll continue to use one competitor in these videos for brevity's sake. Now per Goldman's 2018 10K, they ranked number one in worldwide announced and completed mergers and acquisitions and also ranked number one in worldwide equity and equity-related offerings and common stock offerings. That being said, I wonder if that general sentiment of them being the best investment banking firm in the world is still valid today, given some of the recent years haven't been as stellar as they used to be. Anyways, when I saw Goldman fall under $175 in December of 2018, I knew I wanted to take a position in it from a growth play. Their dividend track record was mediocre compared to many in my portfolio but I felt confident it was undervalued and was a company I wanted to invest in. A month after buying Goldman Sachs, it was already up 15%, and 
but I thought it still had room to run. And then six months after buying it, something wonderful happened that caused me to evolve my strategy from it being a buy low, sell high play to accepting it, albeit tentatively, as a smaller position in my dividend portfolio. You see, in June of this year, the new CEO and board of directors said that they plan to increase their dividend from $3.20 a share from where we started the year to $5 a share in quarter three, which is an absolutely insane 56.25% increase in a single year. I can't think of too many companies that have ever increased their dividend that much in a single year. But to keep that in check, realize their yield is still relatively low. One thing I like is what Goldman has touted about their capital plans and commitments. This is what the relatively new CEO David Solomon said. We are pleased to have the ability to increase our common stock dividend while pursuing our strategic growth initiatives. Through our capital plan and the reinvestment in our business, we remain committed to driving long-term shareholder returns. So as I get into it, while I do have some concerns about their free cash flow being able to service the dividend, I'm going to put my confidence in their CEO and board of directors that they wouldn't increase their dividend if they had any indication that the dividend wasn't sustainable. Let's first understand the investment banking industry. Investment banking is part of the financial industry. They normally offer a variety of services, including underwriting, which is about raising capital for investors and companies that want to raise money or go public via IPOs. And when I'm talking about raising money, it can be for mega large projects like building power plants or massive structures. The types of projects that usually make money but require incredible amounts of capital in order to be built. The amount of cash needed is often so high that traditional banks can't cover them. So that's where the investment banks step in. They also provide counsel and oversight for mergers and acquisitions, also called M&A, which means they help buyers and sellers of businesses. They provide asset management services, which helps investors and institutions manage their investments. They conduct equity research, which provides information to investors to help them make better stock investment decisions. And finally, they offer sales and trading services, which are activities related to the buying and selling of securities or other financial instruments usually on behalf of their clients or themselves. So they do things like call institutional investors with ideas or opportunities, and they execute orders on behalf of their clients who they are advising when to buy and sell. There are a variety of things I like to understand when I'm looking at banks, such as how they manage risk, how they manage their investments, and ultimately how are they making money for us shareholders. Now Goldman has four main business segments, investment banking, institutional client services, investing in lending, and investing management. A key segment where Goldman has dominated is advising on the majority of high-profile M&A deals in the world. Goldman has over a trillion and a half assets under management. They came out of the 2009 financial crisis fairly well, other than their rep was somewhat tarnished. They also provide management consulting services to help with corporate divestitures, corporate defense activities, restructurings, spin-offs, and risk management activities. Warren Buffett has valued Goldman Sachs for over a decade, and he owns billions of dollars in it. This is an excerpt of his 2019 shareholder letter. What does Buffett see in them? The same thing he has seen in them for over a decade, a well-managed firm with upside potential that is worth holding forever. Beyond Buffett's interest in Goldman, let's hear why two months ago Kramer said Goldman was a buy. Are the big banks finally back? Have they become investable again, even with the Fed poised to cut rates and the economy slowing? Let's just say that they've become a lot more attractive here after this week. The big banks that have reported so far, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, and Bank of America, they have earned a combined total of $29.5 billion. That is astonishing. J.P. Morgan alone made $9.6 billion. Bank of America clocked at $7 billion. These are extraordinary profits. When you make that much money, your bank's, your stock deserves to trade at a higher valuation than uh, they certainly have been getting before these numbers. So how did they do it? We're going to take them one by one. 
Then there's Goldman Sachs. My alma mater has a habit of crushing expectations on the earnings side. They're not showing enough revenue growth. Not this time, though. This time, Goldman's revenues were massively better than anticipated, driven by some unexpected strength in investment banking and equities. Think on it right. Goldman stock has long been held back by what I call the episodic, herky-jerky nature of its sales. But with the company focused on building up its recurring revenue, that's now much less of a problem. I think the stock is way too cheap, trading at 9.4 times this year's earnings with recurring revenue about 65% of their numbers. Goldman's tangible book value is 203. It's at 213. The best for last. Buy. Okay, now on to business. Goldman is a 150-year-old investment banking and financial services company and is ranked 62 on the Fortune 500 of the largest public U.S. companies by revenue and has been on that list for the last 25 years. They are ranked 214 on the Fortune Global 500. They are also ranked 26 on Fortune's 2019 World's Most Admired Company list, where they've been on for the last 12 years. This is useful info to be aware of, as Fortune asked executive directors and analysts to rate enterprises in their own industry on nine criteria, from investment value and quality of management and products to social responsibility and ability to, to attract talent. A company's score must rank in the top half of its industry survey to be listed. So this is ultimately execs rating their peers and other companies. And Goldman ranked 80 on the 2019 Forbes Most Powerful Brands list. Okay, now let's understand how Goldman Sachs came into existence. A teacher named Marcus Goldman left Bavaria in 1848, seeking a better life in the United States. He started as a peddler in Philadelphia and then invested in a sewing machine to be a tailor. After 20 years, he moved to New York City and decided he wanted to become a proper businessman, and so he opened up shop as a banker in 1869. He helped provide small business owners like jewelers and tanners with short-term capital to enable them to grow. In 1882, Goldman brought on his son-in-law, Sam Sachs, to become his partner, and Sam helped propel the business to really grow. In 1885, Goldman's son, Henry, joined the firm. Henry came up with an innovative idea to value businesses based on their potential future earnings. His idea would become the model to help value companies, which Goldman then used to IPO many companies you have heard of, such as Sears, Ford, and Disney. Goldman Sachs had its first major public scandal in the 1930s during the Great Depression. They were allegedly involved in a pyramid scheme using investment trusts, which I think of as the closed-end mutual funds of that era. After the Great Depression, Sidney Weinberg, a middle school dropout, landed a job at Goldman Sachs as an assistant to the janitor and was doing tasks such as wiping mud from partners' shoes. The grandson of the firm's founder, Paul Sachs, liked Weinberg and promoted him to the mailroom and then helped him go to college. Eventually, Sidney became a securities trader at Goldman and kept working his way up in the corporation until he became its leader, a position he kept until he died 39 years later. He was known in the industry as Mr. Wall Street and is another great example of someone who started at the bottom and worked his way up. Goldman Sachs is known as an investment bank that has always worked with the extremely rich and powerful. So it should be no surprise to learn that Goldman established close contacts within the U.S. government, and because of that and their capabilities, they were asked to provide financing help to the U.S. government during World War II and the Korean War. Goldman Sachs evolved into a global financial titan from the 1970s to the 1990s as they took on new partnerships, expanded overseas, and dominated new markets. They went public in 1999, raising $7 billion in capital, which was primarily used to grow the business. And then, of course, we have the terrible recession that started in 2007, and I'll elaborate about Goldman's role in that later. Okay, let's look at some of their current business strategies. This is from their 2019 fixed income presentation, which shows their strategies. And this is what we can see their high level strategies are. Number one, grow and strengthen our existing businesses. Number two, diversify our business mix with new products and services. And number three, achieve greater operating efficiency. Here's a one page overview that goes deeper into their strategies. Feel free to pause this if you want to understand their specific strategies by business segment as well as how they plan to increase efficiencies within their org. These data points should help you understand at a high level where they're trying to go and how they're trying to get there. 
Another core strategic shift of Goldman's is evolving from being a traditional investment banking company into a technology company that does banking. For the past five years, Goldman has been the biggest investor in tech startups of any Fortune 500 company outside the technology industry. They have more investments in what is called the unicorn startup companies, i.e. those worth more than $1 billion, than any other investment bank out there, with names they are investing in that you would recognize, such as Uber and Spotify. Another strategic shift to be aware of is that Goldman is pivoting from only focusing on Wall Street to also focusing on Main Street with their venture into fintech with Marcus, which is an online savings bank, amongst other things. This has vaulted them into the consumer banking space with upside potential. They are now making billions on consumer loans through Marcus, and their retail deposit base is tens of billions. Thus, they've had good growth in a short amount of time. And because they built Marcus from scratch, it should be a more modernized and scalable system. Goldman Sachs is going from being an exclusive firm of the super rich to the working guy who drinks a Budweiser. I actually got a Marcus savings account after they opened because they had over a 2% interest rate and was a brand name I had faith in. They have recently lowered their savings rate down to 2% as the Fed cuts rates. I'm not affiliated with them other than I hold stock in Goldman, but I can say I like the Marcus website and features because it's simple to use and has a great rate and it's backed by a brand name I trust as opposed to a potential fly-by-night online bank that I don't recognize. So I like to store some of my cash in Marcus as well as in my E-Trade Bank savings account, which has a slightly lower rate, which is at 1.75% today, but which allows me to instantaneously move money into my brokerage when I want to do an immediate same-second trade rather than wait for cash to show up in my brokerage account in the normal transfer and clear process that can take days with many brokers and banks. And I never like to leave cash idling my brokerage. I always immediately move any cash into my E-Trade savings account and then more material amounts of cash into Marcus. That is one of the many reasons why I like E-Trade as my primary broker. Another one I might check out is Wealthfront at 2.07%, but I tend to use financial institutions with longer track records than theirs. Another sign of their new strategic shift of targeting Main Street is seen in the new Apple Card. But if you happen to be somewhere that doesn't accept Apple Pay yet, there's this. Titanium, laser etched, and no number. Nice. This is Apple Card, a new kind of credit card created by Apple. The Apple Card is primarily a digital card that lives in the wallet app on an iPhone. Cardholders have the option to request a physical titanium card. You can earn 3% cash back on goods or services purchased directly from Apple 2% cash back on Apple Pay purchases, and 1% cash back on all other purchases. Back to Goldman. As Goldman evolves into a tech company, they are competing for the same talent that Facebook and Google and the like are targeting, so Goldman has to evolve its cultural practices, which is what they're doing. They are relaxing their dress code, they are hiring younger talent over video cameras, and they are becoming more transparent and vulnerable. A total 180 for Goldman. They are no longer de demanding talent only from the Ivy Leagues. Their new CEO, David Solomon, whom I'll talk about later in my exec session, is greatly influencing the evolving hiring processes and that culture at Goldman. And did I mention that he's a DJ known as DJ D-Soul? He produces electronic dance music, AKA EDM, and has performed at nightclubs and music festivals around New York, Miami, and the Bahamas. His Spotify profile has over a half million listeners, and his debut single, Don't Stop, has over a million listens. You can find musical sets of his on his SoundCloud account, which is also where you can find my podcasts. He applied to Goldman as an analyst years ago, but was rejected from them. So he went to work for other firms and eventually started mingling with Goldman employees, all of which helped him eventually land a job there in 2006. So never give up and keep pushing. You can do it. You can do it. Listen to me, you can do it. Now let's dive into their financials. There are three main things that I like to look for when I'm analyzing a business. Number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? And number three, do they have too much debt? For investment banks, there's some additional metrics I like to review, and they are return on equity and price to book or price to tangible book. And number six, return on assets. Let's start with number one. 
There are six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? Number one is revenue growing, which is on the income statement. Number two are earnings growing, also on the income statement. Number three is equity growing on the balance sheet. Number four is cash flow growing on the cash flow statement. Number five is the dividend growing consistently over a decent period of time, usually found on their website or something like Seeking Alpha. And number six is the stock price growing over a decent period of time. So let's start with number one of six is revenue growing. Let's check out their financial metrics using macrotrends.net. Here we see that Goldman Sachs annual revenue for 2018 was $36.7 billion, an 11.9% increase from 2017. Their annual revenue for 2017 was $32.7 billion, which is a 6.3% increase from 2016. And their annual revenue for 2016 was $30.8 billion, a 9% decline from 2015. And then for Morgan Stanley, we see that their annual revenue for 2018 was $40.1 billion, a 5.7% increase from 2017. Their annual revenue for 2017 was $37.9 billion, which is a 9.6% increase from 2016. And their annual revenue for 2016 was $34.6 billion, a 1.5% decline from 2015. So Morgan Stanley revenue has been looking better than Goldman Sachs, though in this bull run I would have liked to see consistent increases every year for both of them. For big established companies like the ones I invest in, while I'd love to see 5-10% to growth year-over-year, year, that sometimes isn't realistic, so just seeing positive numbers can still be good. Goldman's revenue in 2018 was higher than its 2017 revenue due to significantly higher market-making revenues and net interest income, as well as due to higher investment management revenues and investment banking revenues. Let's review their revenues and expenses by each of their business segments. Here we see that investment management is their largest income source, followed by investment banking, then institutional client services, and lastly, investment management. Let's look at forecasted data for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Here's data from a site called Trefis, or it's Trefis, I'm not sure how they pronounce it, which is easily consumable. If you want to be precise, it's always better to go to a company's 10Ks and 10Qs and analyst estimates, but I'm sharing some aggregated information that they provided, which was helpful, though you should always question it for accuracy and precision. Here we see a known industry fact that Goldman dominates mergers and acquisitions amongst investment banks. Here we see that their M&A revenue has been significantly higher than Morgan Stanley's and that these forecasts show them to continue to grow through at least 2021. Now let's look at Trefi's forecast and comparison of debt underwriting revenues. Here we see again that Goldman is ahead of Morgan Stanley and expects to remain on a slight upward trend at least through 2021. Now let's look at their forecast of equity underwriting revenues per Trefis. Here we see Goldman and Morgan's revenues being almost identical with a slight edge to Morgan. And we see the next few years have increased growth through at least 2021. Now let's look at the complete revenue estimates for Goldman Sachs versus Morgan Stanley per Trefis. Here we have Goldman on the left and Morgan Stanley on the right. Goldman is well ahead of Morgan Stanley, and both show growth going through at least 2021. Now, one thing to consider is that the more volatile the stock market, the more an investment bank's trading services will be leveraged to gain competitive advantage. So this market's volatility is nice from that perspective. At the same time, the hyper-competitiveness in the industry will cause probable lowering of fees, which could negatively impact revenue. So, different things to ponder. Number two of six, are earnings growing? Let's look at Goldman Sachs' net income trend over time and compare them to Morgan Stanley's. Here we see that Goldman Sachs' annual net income for 2018 was $9.9 billion, a 168% increase from 2017. Their annual net income for 2017 was $3.7 billion, a 48% decline from 2016. And their annual net income for 2016 was $7.1 billion, a 27% increase from 2015. Morgan Stanley's annual net income for 2018 was $8.2 billion, a 47% increase from 2017. Their annual net income for 2017 was $5.6 billion, a 1.5% increase from 2016. And their annual net income for 2016 was $5.5 billion, a 2.9% decline from 2015. I'd prefer to see a trend of continually increasing net incomes, but overall Morgan Stanley had a nicer trend line, though Goldman has come on strong for the last three quarters. Goldman's 2018 net income was higher than 
their 2017 net income due to a variety of factors, including higher interest rates on collateralized agreements, interest earning assets and deposits at banks, increases in loans receivable, and higher yields on certain financial assets. Their increase in interest income was reduced by higher interest expenses as well as due to collateralized financings and increases in total deposits amongst others. I'd also recommend you look at their combined ratio, which I'll skip in an attempt to keep this shorter. Okay, number three of six, is equity growing? We see that both Goldman and Morgan Stanley are buying back a lot of shares. Watch my Home Depot video for an in-depth explanation as to why shareholders equity can be an interesting metric. The summary is that when a company is doing significant share buybacks, it can lead to decreased shareholders' equity, even negative shareholders' equity. I personally still like to see a positive shareholders' equity, which we see here. Though I prefer Morgan's continually increasing shareholder equity, Goldman is blowing them out of the water in terms of buybacks. Another interesting metric we could evaluate is debt to total capital, which is total debt divided by total capital. It can be a useful metric to understand how much debt is being used to keep the bank trunking along. It is similar to another metric that I sometimes use, which is called the debt to equity ratio. That's something I suggest you look into on your own. Now let's look at operating cash flow rather than earnings per share and watch my traveler's video to understand why I sometimes prefer looking at operating cash flow per share rather than EPS. So number four of six is cash flow growing. To answer the question, is a company growing? Free cash flow per share is a measure of how much cash per share a business generates after accounting for capex like equipment or buildings. When free cash flow is positive, it means that the company is generating more cash that is used to run the business and reinvest to grow the business. A negative free cash flow number indicates the company is not able to generate sufficient cash to support the business. We obviously like for our businesses to be capable of supporting themselves and having the potential to grow. So, free cash flow per share equals free cash flow divided by shares of common stock outstanding, where free cash flow equals operating cash flow minus capital expenditures. Free cash flow is really useful, even more so than earnings per share. Cash flow per share is thought of to be a better measure of a company's financial flexibility because it is difficult to manipulate it through accounting tricks. So let's compare Goldman's free cash flow per share to Morgan Stanley's. I don't like saying negative free cash flow per share that is volatile like we see here, especially for Goldman. It gives me some concerns if their free cash flow can service their dividend, even if their diluted EPS tells me they've made enough earnings to cover their new bigger dividend. That being said, there is a reason why they call Goldman employees the smartest people in the room. So I'll put my confidence in their CEO and board of directors that they, that they wouldn't increase their dividend if they thought they couldn't cover and grow it. No one manages risk better than Goldman in my opinion. Okay, let's move on to number five of six is the dividend growing consistently. Now investment banks in the US aren't normally what I think of when I'm looking for stable and growing passive income. Canadian banks are a great place to look at, but generally not US banks. Canadian banks have shown for more than a century that banking is a fairly reliable place to look for dividend growth, or at least not cuts. Let's look at Seeking Alpha for the dividend history of both companies, along with my spreadsheet. Here we see that Morgan Stanley's dividend history is not as good as Goldman's. During the financial crisis, Morgan Stanley slashed their dividend, so the edge here goes to Goldman. And as I already said, Goldman Sachs has planned to increase their dividend to $5 a share this Friday, and at the beginning of the year their dividend was $3.20 a share, for an out-of-this-world increase of 56.25% in 2019. Now the type of dividend growth I like to see varies by industry. So whereas for energy companies and utilities I expect to see something around 4%, if I had to genericize it, then I'd want to see a 7% or 8% for any random company. We see that Goldman has a great 10-year dividend compound annual growth rate of 9.5%, and Morgan's is also great at 8.4%. Their five-year compound annual growth rates are even better. Also realize that we've been in a bull market run for 10 years, so factor that into your go-forward thoughts. We also see that before the yield gets interesting, we are decades out, so neither of these businesses would be ones I would probably get into if I wanted income now. But you can see how compelling they could be at 30 or 40 years out, which is obviously a low likelihood we could ever see exactly that. That being said, on a Q2 analyst call, Goldman indicated that it is striving to have a higher dividend long term. Goldman realizes its dividend is an important aspect of total shareholder return, and hopefully they'll be able to cover its growth with recurring and predictable revenue sources with their ongoing and new investments in products like Marcus and the Apple Card. 
Along with dividends growth, it is useful to see if they're doing share buybacks. While I prefer dividends over share buybacks, I can still appreciate the careful repurchase of shares at appropriate times, and it's something I think is useful for you to dig into when you're analyzing a company. If you look at Goldman's shares, they've been reduced from over 500 million in the early 2000s to now down under 400 million, and they have continued to have plans to repurchase billions more between now and the mid 2020. Finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing over a decent period of time? To help us answer the question, is a company growing? Let's look at total returns of Goldman Sachs compared to the S&P 500 and Goldman Sachs compared to Morgan Stanley using Dividend Channels Calculator. Let's first look at Goldman Sachs compared to SPY. This models what would have happened if you had invested 10K into Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and SPY in 2005. The top shows dividends reinvested and the bottom is dividends not reinvested. Goldman with dividends gives you 143% return and your 10K would end at 24.4K after 15 years. Goldman without dividends gives you 132% return and your 10K would end at 23.2K. Morgan Stanley with dividends gives you a 20.6% return and your 10K would end at 12K. And Morgan Stanley without dividends gives you a 21.34% return and your 10K would end at 12.1K. So no appreciable difference if you had just kept dividends in cash rather than reinvested them due to stock price over this time horizon for Morgan Stanley. SPY with dividends gives you a 229% return and your 10K would end at 33K. SPY without dividends gives you 188% return and your 10K would end at 29K. So SPY wins with Goldman behind it and Morgan Stanley showing poorly. Clearly the financial crisis impacted banks the most, which is what you would expect, but this shows us that Goldman still performed very well for one of the worst economic periods for banks. Okay, now the number two main item I like to look at when I'm analyzing a business. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? When analyzing a business, I like to understand if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It's important to compare ratios in the same industry due to fluctuations in what is normal. Let's look at macro trends, which has created some nice graphs of current ratio over time. Here we see that Goldman Sachs is at 0.85 and Morgan Stanley is at 0.77. The higher the ratio, the more liquid the company is. So all other things being equal, creditors consider a high current ratio to be better than a low current ratio. And here we see that they are both within normal industry ranges. Okay, the final main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Let's use what Macro Trends has. If the ratio is greater than one, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it is smaller than one, assets are primarily financed through equity. You also might want to do a modified debt to equity via taking out the negative impacts of treasury stock. A high treasury stock can skew a strong balance sheet to look weak. Financial stocks that borrow money to lend money tend to have higher debt to equity ratios, as we see here, though these are a bit high. Sectors that utilize capital extensively like utilities, also tend to have higher debt-to-equity ratios. So you can use the ratio to compare similar companies in similar industries. Buffett has said that he likes it under 0.5, and we see that Goldman Sachs is at 2.78 and Morgan Stanley is at 2.66 for their most recent debt-to-equity ratios. So they're in line for one another, but I'd like to still see lower, even for the industry. It's important to understand that banks are amongst the most leveraged institutions out there. That is part of the reason why we have regulators like the FDIC, the Fed itself, and others in order to help review and restrict the leverage ratios of our banks. They restrict how much money a bank can lend relative to how much capital it has in its own assets. Regulators like to put greater restrictions on banks that grow quickly or ones that have financial or operational difficulties in an attempt to better protect consumers. Since the 2008 crisis when we dealt with the too-big-to-fail issue of many big banks, there has been greater focus on banks having higher capital levels, which I think could lead to lower dividend raises in the short term or other impacts, but should be healthier in the long run, which is ultimately what I care about. Regulators help limit the number of loans being made in order to hopefully ensure the ones that are made are appropriate. It is generally more difficult and costlier for a bank to raise capital than it is to borrow, so it's good to track how your banks are investing and with what risk tolerances. It's also useful to be aware of what's called the tier one leverage ratio that regulators use, which looks at how much capital comes in from debt, AKA loans, 
or assesses the ability of a company to meet its financial obligations. A leverage ratio may also be used to measure a makeup of its operating expenses to get an idea of how changes in output will affect operating income. So ratios like debt to equity, consumer leverage, degree of financial leverage, and equity multiplier are all commonly used leverage ratios. Banks also undergo stress tests such as the Dodd-Frank Act stress test, DFAST, and the Comprehensive Capital Analysis and Review, CCAR, as required by regulatory agencies. Goldman submits their capital plan to review by the Federal Review Board. In addition, they are required to perform company-run stress tests on a semi-annual basis. These stress tests are exercises that help bank managers and regulators understand a bank's financial strength. To complete the test, banks run what-if scenarios to determine if they have sufficient assets to survive during periods of economic stress. Many of these sorts of stress tests came from our learnings from the 2008 financial crisis when financial markets came to a halt, large institutions failed, and undercapitalized banks couldn't survive as mass defaults happened. Goldman Sachs tries to make sure it can meet and exceed its stress capital buffer. So even though they return so much capital to shareholders, they are still at a good place to manage capital at the appropriate amounts. As you might remember, during the 07-09 financial crisis, financial markets stopped, large financial institutions failed, and undercapitalized banks couldn't absorb losses from mass loan defaults. Eventually, the governments around the world had to step in to stabilize things by lending $700 billion bailouts to many large banks, including Goldman, which led to financial institutions being able to transact again. The funds were made available to a variety of companies, including AIG, Chrysler, Ford, GM, as well as a large portion was set aside to help owners refinance or restructure their mortgages. The FDIC also increased deposit insurance from 100K to 250K to improve consumer confidence and minimize the likelihood of bank runs. Regardless, this was a terrible time for many people in the U.S., which led to job losses and foreclosures and shattered retirement dreams. Now let's look at their earnings power, or return on equity. ROE is sometimes called the mother of all ratios for the reason that it helps us gauge a company's efficiency by looking at both its income statement and balance sheet. Return on equity and return on assets ratios are both known as profitability ratios as they indicate the level of profit generated by a business. They both gauge a company's ability to generate earnings from its investments, but they don't exactly represent the same thing. Together, however, they provide a clearer understanding of a company's performance. Return on equity is how well it's using the money shareholders have invested to turn a profit. So return on equity measures how much a business earns with respect to the amount of equity that was put in the business. It tells us how effectively a company's management team uses investors' money, so it shows us whether management is growing the company's value at an acceptable rate. For banks, I'd like to see 10% to cover their cost of capital and make money for shareholders. And I care more about year-over-year -year trends than quarter-to-quarter -quarter due to volatility. Return on equity calculated from metrics on the income statement, is net income divided by total equity. So ROE is the income that is being generated as a percentage of shareholders' equity, also known as book value. In some industries, it isn't as useful as ROE, like if they are asset light and they pay out their cash as they earn it, at least in my opinion. Now let's check ROEs from macro trends. A higher ROE means that a business is doing really well since they are able to generate a high amount of profit given a particular level of investment in the form of equity. The higher the ROE, the better, and we see Goldman and Morgan are in the same ballpark of one another and have been trending up lately. They're around in the 10% range, as I'd like to see in their industry. We also see from Guru Focus that Goldman is ranked higher than 70% of the 710 companies in the brokers and exchanges sector and that Morgan Stanley is ranked 69% higher, so a slight edge to Goldman. They used a much broader definition of sector than I would have used. There are a variety of other metrics that you should look into if you really want to dig deep, such as return on tangible equity, or ROAT, which measures the rate of return on tangible common equity and is calculated by dividing net earnings applicable to common shareholders by average monthly tangible common shareholders' equity. I pulled ROAT from their 10K. Another valuable metric is return on capital employed, which is a profitability ratio that measures how efficiently a company can generate profits from its capital employed by comparing net operating profit to capital employed. Net operating profit is often called EBIT or earnings before interest and taxes. Another metric we could look at is debt to total capital 
to determine how much debt is being used to keep the bank trucking along. The formula is total debt by total capital. A higher number means that there is a higher level of risk in the company. Reviewing banks' non-interest expense over their total revenue over a period of time is another interesting metric we could look at to understand how much the bank is spending for each dollar of revenue. A lower ratio is what we want. We also want to understand how much risk Goldman is taking on to achieve its earnings. Non-performing loans is normally useful to look at, but not so much for these companies since it is a relatively smaller percentage of the revenue. Anyways, there are a slew of useful metrics that can be good to utilize when evaluating companies like these. I've included some big ones, and you can dive into the others if you are so inclined. It's also good to look at how efficiently a bank is controlling its costs with efficiency ratios. Assets over equity is about 11, which means they are appropriately leveraged. A high asset to equity ratio can mean that a company is intelligently trading on the equity because the return on borrowed capital exceeds the cost of capital. Goldman was wise to diversify its revenue acquisition in, in its different business segments in their attempt to succeed in different markets and conditions. So while their wealth management segment might be doing well in certain economic conditions, their trading does well in others. As their assets under management increases, that generally means they get increased fee revenues as they do better in various market conditions. Now let's look at their price to book ratios or P2B ratio. I mentioned this after ROE because ROE has the largest effect on the P2B ratio. Price to book is calculated by dividing a company's stock price by its book value per share, which is defined as total assets minus any liabilities. So we can calculate it manually or just look it up on macro trends. I'm going to use macro trends. Generally speaking, in this industry, I feel that they are worth buying at a PB closer to 1, and when they get to 2 or more, they are too expensive. We see that Goldman is a 0.85 and Morgan Stanley is a 0.87, so virtually the same. The industry median is 1.13, so Goldman is looking more attractive than Morgan Stanley. Book value is often seen as more useful than price to earning for banks, which often trade at multiples of their assets, depending on how profitable they are. You can also go deeper and look at tangible book value, which only includes the assets that can be readily sold. It doesn't include things like goodwill. Price to book and price to tangible book give you a better understanding of how much investors are willing to pay for a bank's assets because how well they generate a profit on their assets usually indicates how valuable they're going to be from a price to book perspective. Goldman's price to tangible book value is 1.04 as compared to Morgan Stanley's 1.16 and the industry median of 1.2, so Goldman looks more attractive. Another interesting metric to consider is sustainable growth rate to determine how fast a company can grow if it isn't issuing more stock or taking on more debt. This metric is helpful in comparing where Goldman should be trading relative to Morgan Stanley. If they improve their ROE, or if they issue more stock or debt, or if they lower the percentage of net income they pay out in dividends, then that will all change their sustainable growth rate. Number six, return on assets. Let's continue on and look at return on assets to see how efficiently Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are squeezing profit from their assets by looking at return on assets. ROA is a measure of how well a bank takes all the money it has and uses that to make more money. ROA is a metric which is used to calculate management's effectiveness to understand how much profit a company earns for every dollar of its assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what I look for outside of banks. For banks, a 1% or greater ROA is what I look for with large banks tending to have a lower ratio that often fluctuates with the economy. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Let's look at macrotrends.net. Here we see that Goldman's most recent ROA is 0.97% and Morgan Stanley's is 0.89%. So Goldman edges out Morgan Stanley, and both were a bit lower than I'd like to see. Guru Focus tells us that Goldman Sachs is ranked lower than 52% of its competitors when it comes to ROA and that Morgan Stanley is ranked lower than 53% of its competitors. So they're probably next to one another on the list. So Goldman Sachs barely takes it here. If we wanted to go deeper, we could look at risk-weighted probability, which can be calculated by using the return on risk-weighted assets ratio. The ratio is an evolution of ROA. The main difference is that instead of comparing capital against total assets, it compares against risk-weighted assets, which take into account a correction factor based on the risk assumed by the bank. Another potentially useful metric is to use the risk-adjusted return on capital, which is used to calculate return relative to the level of risk that is taken on. It can be used to compare the performance of multiple investments with differing levels of risk exposure. It is calculated by dividing expected return by risk.
feel free to look deeper into those metrics if you're so inclined. Now let's move from their financials to their community involvement and charitable giving and to their environmental, social, and governance work. Goldman has a nice history of charitable giving through a fund slash program called Goldman Sachs Gives. This fund allows current and retired senior employees to work together to recommend grants to qualifying nonprofit organizations to help them achieve their goals. They've made nearly $1.5 billion in grants and partnered with thousands of nonprofits in 90 countries around the world. Additionally, Goldman Sachs has put targets in place to increase their investments and funding of clean energy projects to be at $150 billion by 2025. They've underwritten $27 billion worth of bonds in green, social, and sustainability areas in the last six years, and they've had zero net carbon emissions since 2015 per their 2017 sustainability report. They have a scorecard they're tracking as they strive to improve their ESG goals, including items such as leveraging green buildings, reducing business waste, becoming more energy efficient in their offices, and making more investments in innovative green technologies. Okay, let's move on to their leadership. I first want to say that accurately assessing leadership is challenging, but as I understand their cultural values, tenure, backgrounds, perspectives on hiring, diversity, charitable giving, etc., each piece of new information better shapes my understanding of where they're going, which helps evolve my conviction level in terms of my investments. The Goldman Sachs exec team tenure averages around 20 years, which is significantly more than the industry average, which I like to see. I like the fact that three of their top seven positions are more diverse. David Solomon is their new CEO, and he took over from Loin Blankfein, their previous CEO, for 12 years. David Solomon and Stephen Schur, the CFO, used to work together as investment bankers, which is also a good sign. Oftentimes, a CEO and CFO are locked at the hip, balancing each other's strengths and weaknesses out. Given their lineage in investment banking, it wouldn't surprise me to see Goldman excel in that area. Now, a good data point to gauge how a CEO has performed is to check the stock performance since he joined. So let's look how Goldman has done since Solomon became CEO in October of 2018. That being said, he hasn't even been in the role for a full year, so it's proper to somewhat temper our enthusiasm for this metric. Here we see Goldman in black, Spy in blue, and Morgan in purple. Goldman has gone down in stock value since he took over and has underperformed relative to the S&P 500, though has performed similarly to Morgan Stanley, which is only fair to tad bit better. I don't believe any of the public investment banks have done exceedingly well during this relatively short period of time. David is currently shaking things up at Goldman in order to deliver better shareholder returns. He has been reviewing all internal processes as well as partners at Goldman. He wants to weed out Goldman Sachs employees that have been elevated to some of the highest level possibles, that of partner, if they are not hitting their financial targets. Partners are the best paid employees at Goldman with a starting salary of a million dollars a year and going up from there based on how they perform. There are about 450 partners at Goldman. Solomon's moves will cut expenses and give opportunities for newer employees to outperform and be rewarded with the partner title and its associated perks. As of the time I'm filming this video, over a dozen partners are in negotiations to leave. Sure, his CFO has stated they're doing this to ultimately boost shareholder returns. So I feel for anyone who loses their jobs, but ultimately Solomon's role is bottom line to drive outcomes and shareholder returns. These moves follow other big changes Solomon has made, including naming Sure last year as a CFO and John Waldron as president. Couple these changes along with how they are putting technology at the forefront of their company shows me that they are putting themselves in an excellent position to get better shareholder outcomes. David is also embracing bringing in more minorities and women into senior roles at Goldman. He is also doing something that has never existed in the past at Goldman, which is promoting a better work-life balance for the employees. Long term, I think all of these changes will put them on a better path. Okay, let's review some concerns and risks to be aware of. There are a variety of risks you need to be aware of that can impact a company like Goldman, and I'll cover some of them. Given our massive decade-long bull run, it's reasonable to assume we are overdue for a large pullback. Many feel that the trigger may be tied to our growing debt levels across the board at the national, corporate, and personal levels. While no one knows, a crash, recession, or even depression is all possible. It's important to remember how bad things got in 2008 and factor this into how Goldman might be impacted. That being said, I'm personally not pulling out of equities or going into bonds. I'll ride the wave and get soaked in the process. This also means that the assets they invest in could decline in certain market conditions, which is another risk they face. 
For reference, this is what Goldman did when the most recent financial crisis hit us. It fell from a top of $235 in 07 down to $66 in 08. It is a concern to me that Goldman issued and underwrote many mortgages and securities that ultimately helped tip the economy into recession in 2007, as well as negatively and severely impacted many people's lives. Goldman agreed to pay $2.39 billion in civil penalties and another $1.8 billion in relief in the form of loan forgiveness and financing for affordable housing. An additional $875 million was set aside in cash to resolve claims from other federal and state entities. These fees were meant to hold Goldman accountable for its misconduct in falsely assuring investors that securities it sold were backed by sound mortgages, per the Associate Attorney General Stuart Delery. Another risk is its return on tangible equity risk, another metric we didn't dive into. But Goldman is challenged relative to its competitors. Goldman's growth hasn't been flourishing, and its new business ventures like Marcus and Apple Card aren't yet driving their potential returns. There is also the risk of volatile interest rates that could negatively impact Goldman. Investment banks can benefit from lower interest rates since they can enable more activity in capital markets. That being said, investment banks are generally seen as less rate sensitive than commercial banks, but how it could impact Goldman may be more nuanced than a black and white answer. So I'll just leave it saying interest rate volatility is a risk you should dig into. Goldman Sachs may also have risks of future credit losses as they head down this path of targeting mainstream consumer banking coupled with their loans increasing. Speaking more broadly, if there are disruptions in access to credit, then they could be negatively impacted. Another risk is that if their investments or their own activities don't perform as they expect, then that could negatively impact things. They, like almost all companies, face cybersecurity threats and risks, as well as could be negatively impacted by operational issues. Another risk is they have a new CEO and it's possible their full corporate strategies will need to evolve before their outcomes materially shift. And since they're struggling to earn even cost of equity in the great market we've had for a long time, it's something I'm concerned about. And then there's the insanity of the 1MDB risked Goldman. This is a crazy story that I bet will be made into a movie. I'm not even kidding. I probably don't even know the half of it. As of now, we have 17 current and former Goldman Sachs execs that are facing criminal charges in Malaysia because of their alleged involvement. The Malaysian government is after Goldman for billions of dollars in restitution. Goldman apparently offered a couple hundred million dollars to compensate Malaysia for Goldman's role in the scandal involving their state fund. This is a topic you might want to research on your own rather than get details from me, but I'll summarize the best from what I've understood. The Malaysian Development Burhad, or 1MDB, was founded in 2009, shortly after Najib Razak became Prime Minister of Malaysia. It was a fund set up to finance infrastructure and other deals in Malaysia. But money in the fund was apparently used for buying casinos, paintings, and other crazy spendings, which eventually was a catalyst for the making of the movie called The Wolf of Wall Street. Billions of dollars were supposedly used inappropriately by high-level officials and associates between 2009 and 2014 for the U.S. Department of Justice. Razak has claimed no wrongdoing. In 2012, officials from 1MDB met with Goldman Sachs to discuss a deal. Goldman apparently raised billions for the fund and earns hundreds of millions in fees. Goldman has denied the allegation and has stated that they were lied to, amongst other things. In 2016, the FBI began looking into a Goldman Sachs exec and Razak. This Goldman Sachs exec pleaded guilty in the U.S. to conspiracy related to money laundering and bribery. Another Goldman exec was charged with corruption and money laundering in Malaysia and supposedly has fled to China. It gets better. The DOG was allegedly looking into a donation to President Trump's victory pack, which may have come from funds from a Malaysian financier, Joe Lau. Mr. J. Lau was supposedly living a lavish lifestyle, allegedly via diverting millions from the M1DB investment fund money. He was partying with celebrities on yachts and apparently dated model Miranda Kerr. The former Goldman CEO might have met with this Malaysian financier and the Malaysian prime minister as well. So the risk is that this could bite Goldman and its stock and business could be impacted. How much or if at all is up to you to determine. Anyways, those are some risks that I thought of and that I found in their 10K. But dig deeper into things if you want to go deeper. It's always good to go deeper. That's what she said. So, big question. Is it worth buying at this price? Let's look at a discounted cash flow calculator on Guru Focus to see what they say for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. According to DCF, they both look like they're worth considering, and the clear edge is going to Goldman. Maybe that's why Buffett is gobbling up big bank stocks. Let's look at their PEs. 
I normally see PEs for banks around a 10. Here we see Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley both have nice PEs with the edge going to Goldman Sachs. But as I said, even though I prefer price to book, I still wanted to share PEs. We have talked about a variety of new and interesting ventures Goldman Sachs is pursuing to drive better shareholder returns. Where they go from here is interesting to consider. Maybe they'll drop their trading arm to help improve their margins. Clearly, Wall Street is evolving and Goldman is realizing that. That being said, while both Goldman and Morgan Stanley look inexpensive with many of their metrics, they are in a cyclical business and we're in volatile conditions and potentially nearing the end of a long bull run. It might not be an ideal time to buy without a large margin of safety. So what do you think? I think Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley both look decent, with Goldman Sachs looking better with its margins of safety. I'd like to see a better top line trend with them, but I'm interested in seeing what the new CEO can do. So for now I'm a hold, and for me to add more to my position it would probably need to be under 180, but that's just me. I'm still adjusting to seeing them as a potential dividend play, and I'm going to be patient to see how things play out. I have a small position that I'm fine having given the risks and rewards of everything I've discussed in this video. Others could see this as an incredible value right now if they are more risk tolerant than I. I want to tell you a quote from Anish Pabrai, who we could all learn from. The single biggest advantage a value investor has is not IQ. It is patience and waiting. Waiting for the right pitch and waiting many years for the right pitch. You don't make money when you buy stocks and you don't make money when you sell stocks. You make money by waiting. So, something to consider. And remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and you are responsible to determine what actions you take in your portfolio, such as buying and selling. Okay, here we are in the portfolio. Let's zoom in. All right, so we see I've got my bottom six stocks by market value listed, and I've removed the first 19, and I'll reveal those in future videos. I have 110.9 shares of Goldman Sachs. Today it's a green day, so the share price is at $210.46. It's gone up $2.58 from yesterday. When it closed in the last year, it's actually slightly down. Current PE 8.82, forward PE 8.53, so those are nice. And the dividend discount model uh, says this would be at $126, so looks like a good price. It's in the financials industry, like travelers. And we'll see that when we look at the pie that financials takes up so far based on these six stocks, the majority of the portfolio. The annual dividend is $5 as of this Friday. And we see that on September 27th is when Goldman's going to pay out their next dividend. Current yield is fairly low at 2.38%. The three-year dividend compound annual growth rate is awesome at 7.3%. Well, that's, I'll say it's good. It's not awesome. Uh, the five-year dividend compound annual growth rate is 8.7%, and the 10-year ten, dividend compound annual growth rate is 9.5%. Manually, when I calculated the five-year dividend compound annual growth rate, I got 9.1%. So these I just pulled from some websites. We see that this is what the pie looks like right now. So we can see that financials currently with Travelers and Goldman takes up the majority of it. And then we have energy at 18%. Retail with Home Depot, 17.7%. We have Pfizer Healthcare at 13.8% and Disney Entertainment, 12.7%. So with those six stocks of my 25, that's how things look right now. Uh, let's see, then we go into, we see that the average weighted five-year dividend compound annual growth rate for the portfolio is currently at 11.46%, which is huge growth year over year, if that continues. And we see that the average weighted dividend yield or the starting yield for the portfolio with these six stocks is 2.71%. The market value of Goldman Sachs is about 23.3K, so it brings the market value of the portfolio up to about 120K. The annual passive income is $555, bringing the overall passive income for these six stocks at $3,249 a year. 
that it drips. Nice healthy payout ratio at 14%. And looking at the dividend data on Seeking Alpha, there's about 20 years-ish worth with a bunch of delayed dividend increases, which I don't like to see, um, and seven consecutive years of increases. Beta 1.34, so higher than what I normally go for. And market cap 76 billion, average weighted market cap for these six stocks 166 billion about. Okay, now I'm going to report on any dividend payments of companies I've already revealed since my last video. So this is a screenshot of my dividend payment email that eTrade sent me a few days ago. It shows that Home Depot paid me a quarterly dividend check for $126.48, and I blacked out my account number. Since it's in a drip, it bought a little more than half a share of itself, taking me up to 93.5 shares. Those additional shares took the Home Depot contribution of my annual passive income from $506 a year up to $509 a year. So this dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $3 a year just for this quarter. Thus, you can easily infer that each year that I hold Home Depot in my brokerage, it will increase my passive income by over $12 cumulatively every year, which should continuously increase as it compounds itself and as they increase their dividend. If we jump in my portfolio tracker, you can see I've blacked out um, items I don't need to see quite yet. And I've removed some of the rows of stocks, so you can't infer which ones I have but we see that Goldman Sachs will be paying me on September 27th and Travelers on the 30th. So those are just placeholders until they do pay. And then we see here's the Home Depot payment. So for these stocks so far, we see these are the ones that have paid me $494.13. And then at my Q3 spreadsheet, we see how Disney paid in July. And we see these are the these are the ones that have paid in September, and we know that Goldman and Travelers will be paying here soon. All right. Thanks, everybody. See you in the next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risks. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video, and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it, just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons and share this with others.